We continue our study in John 7. If you um, have a Bible, you can open it to that. The message or the verses will be up on the screen. There should be an outline in your bulletin that you can follow along with if you'd like to track with the message. And also, uh, there are printed messages at both exits. You can pick those up either now or later, and uh, those have more verses and things that I am not always able to turn to during the message for sake of time. And uh, all of the messages for the last 22 years uh, are on the church website and printed and almost all of them in audio form. If you're ever cleaning anything out, don't throw away old cassettes. It might be the the missing half dozen that we we don't have. But um, anyway, those are on there. We come to John 7, starting at verse 25, and I'm going to work down through verse 36 this morning. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall in Jerusalem, six months before he would be arrested and crucified. And uh, we pick up in the middle of that. So some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, Isn't this the man whom they were seeking? They are seeking to kill? Look, he's speaking publicly, and they're saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from, but whenever the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. But many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, When the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. Therefore Jesus said, For a little while longer I am with you. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews then said to one another, Where does this man intend to go so that we will not find him? He's not intending to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What is this statement which he said, You'll seek me and will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The story is told about uh, two elderly ladies that lived together, and one summer evening they were sitting out on their porch and enjoying the pleasant uh, evening. One of the ladies was listening to the sounds of a a church choir that was practicing just down the, the street. The other lady was listening to the sound of the crickets chirping. The lady who was listening to the church choir said, uh, My, isn't that a lovely sound? And the lady listening to the crickets said, Yes, and I understand they do it by rubbing their legs together. (laughs) Well, you know, sometimes confusion can be humorous. We've all had those moments in our marriage where I thought you were talking about this. No, no, I thought you were talking about that. But then sometimes 
confusion can be disastrous. And that is especially true when it comes to spiritual matters. Contrary to the prevailing view of our world, the view that there is no such thing as absolute truth, where, you know, in the spiritual realm, uh, whatever you make up and think about, that's true for you, and it can be your truth. Contrary to that, the Bible teaches that there are not many ways to God, so that whatever you choose will get you there, but rather spiritual truth is very narrow and very well-defined. In fact, you're familiar with John 14:6, where Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So you have to think about that verse and answer the question, was Jesus right or was Jesus wrong? Uh, there's no middle answer there. He's either right about that, he is the only way to the Father, or he was mistaken. And you have to decide. But spiritual truth is very narrow, and spiritual confusion is eternally fatal. Now, in our text, we see different groups of religious Jews. And keep in mind, these are not pagan Gentiles worshiping many gods. These are religious Jews. They're at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem, which shows a certain level of commitment to the uh, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, They believed in the law of Moses. Um, These are the people, but there's different groups here, and they're all confused about Jesus. And if you don't keep the group straight, this passage becomes kind of uh, confusing. There is a group that John calls the Jews. We see them in verse 1, verse 11, verse 13, verse 15, and down in verse 35. I think they also are the they of verse 30 who are seeking to uh, seize Jesus. When John uses that phrase... He is usually referring to the religious leaders among the Jews, the Pharisees and the chief priests. The chief priests were made up of Sadducees, and normally the Pharisees and the Sadducees were rivals, but in this case, they had a common enemy, Jesus, who threatened their power and their position, and so they joined together to try to seize Jesus. They knew, however, that many in the crowd liked Jesus. They also had in their minds when Jesus went into the temple, as we saw in John 2, and cleansed out the money changers, and that interrupted their flow of income for a little while. And so it was a tricky situation, and they were uh, walking on eggshells trying to figure out, how can we get rid of this man? How can we uh, get him out of our hair? Then there's a larger group beyond the Jews that John calls, in my version here, the crowd, the multitude. Uh, Some versions have the people. We meet them in verse 12, again in verse 20, verse 31, and verse 32. And that would include the Jewish pilgrims who had come up from uh, all of the surrounding areas to Jerusalem, some of them even coming from other countries where uh, the Jews were scattered And uh, they were there at the feast. Many of them, as we saw, were not aware of the Jewish leader's intent to kill Jesus. 
And so when he mentioned this in verse 20, as we saw last time, they accused him of having a demon. Then there is a a narrower group that we meet in verse 25 uh, down through verse 27. And they are called the people of Jerusalem. Uh, These would be Jews who lived in Jerusalem or close by. Uh, They were confused about who Jesus is, but they were also confused about why their rulers were not arresting him because they knew the rulers, they were closer to the hierarchy there. They knew they were trying to arrest Jesus, but they didn't know why uh, they might not be arresting him. And uh, they conclude here, not knowing anything about Jesus' origins or not knowing for sure, but they conclude he could not be the Messiah. So the overall feeling as you read through these verses that I hope you picked up as I read them is that of confusion. Everybody's confused in a different sort of way about who is Jesus. There is a small group who will believe in him, as we'll see, But um, John wrote this gospel so that you would not be confused about Jesus. We have seen over and over, I have mentioned it from chapter 20 and verse 31, which I think is the interpretive key to the entire book of John, that John wrote these things so that we would know uh, who Jesus is, so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that means the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, and that believing in him, we may have life in his name. And so John is showing us here that while there are these many confused opinions about who Jesus is, nothing less than your eternal destiny depends on believing the truth about Jesus. Now, let's look at some of the confused opinions that existed about who Jesus is. Some of the people of Jerusalem were wondering out loud whether Jesus might really be the Christ, the Messiah. And they wondered, well, why haven't the Jewish leaders arrested him? And the thought flitted through their mind, well, maybe they really believe he is the Christ, but they quickly dismiss it. Because, as they say in verse 27, however, we know where this man is from. But when the Christ may come, no one knows where he is from. Now, they mistakenly thought that Jesus, or or shall I say that the Christ, the Messiah, they didn't know it was Jesus. But when he came, they thought he would come on the scene suddenly, unannounced, and uh, kind of with a dramatic flash, and they may have based this on Malachi chapter 3 and verse 1. There the Lord says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger, that's a reference to John the Baptist, of course, and he will clear the way before me. Notice the deity of Christ there. The Lord says, He will clear the way before me, and me is Jesus. Um, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come into his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Now, the truth is, Jesus fulfilled that very prophecy in John 2 when he suddenly came in the temple and cleaned out the money changers. Uh, But they missed that. They were not expecting that. 
And uh, all these guys knew, the Jerusalem crowd, is this man, and that's a derogatory term there in uh, verse 27, we know where this man is from. They thought, he's from Nazareth. And surely no Messiah comes out of Nazareth. And uh, they didn't know for sure uh, where Messiah would come from. Now, when we get down to verse 42, we will see, and remember this was part of the birth narrative also, that there were quite a few who realized that Messiah would come from the city of Bethlehem. Micah 5.2, of course, predicted that. Uh, and in verse 42, they make reference to that. But these, uh, even those people who thought Messiah will come from Bethlehem, they didn't know that Jesus was from Bethlehem. They thought, he's from Nazareth. And they didn't bother to find out the truth. And so they rejected him as the Christ. Now, as we've seen, the crowd, the larger group, the pilgrims that had come, they were confused about Jesus also. In verse 12, we saw how some of them were saying, well, he's a good man. And others were saying, no, but he leads the people astray. And uh, so there was confusion. And some even went so far, as I mentioned in verse 20, to accuse Jesus of having a demon because uh, he said that the Jews were trying to kill him. Now, in response to the multitude, in verse 24, as we saw last time, Jesus told them not to judge according to outward appearance, but rather to judge with um, righteous judgment. But John is showing us here the general confusion that results when people judge Jesus superficially. Um, often unbelievers do this. They want to hang on to their sin as the root issue. But then they hear something, some criticism about Jesus, some book, you know, like uh, uh, Dan Brown's books or something like that, that uh, undermines the historicity of who Jesus is, and they latch onto it and say, yep, there's our excuse. See, Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. And they end up rejecting Jesus for superficial reasons. Um, uh, some of the, the ones here uh, do believe, verse 31, as we'll see, but uh, most of the people here are either misinformed they have open hostility as the Jewish leaders have because they are threatened by Jesus and his power. Um, some, as I think verse 35 and verse 36, has the flavor of mocking unbelief, just writing him off. You know, who is this guy? He's just going to go to the Greeks, that kind of thing. Uh, and there's a lot of confusion. Now, at the heart, whenever you see confusion about Jesus, you realize it's not up here in the head. It's a spiritual issue, and the deceiver is behind it all. Worldwide, where there is confusion about Christ, Satan is the author of it, and he still is. You see it in the final pages of the New Testament in 1 John, for example, uh, John writes against those who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. That, that view was called docetism. And it was already springing up in the late first century, and John writes against it. Then, 
two or three centuries later, and there were many, many other heresies, of course, in the meanwhile, but a prominent one happened when a bishop named Arius decided he couldn't quite resolve in his mind the issue of the Trinity, and he decided, well, Jesus is a great being, but he is the first created being. He is above all other beings, uh, created beings, but he is not eternal God. And there was a uh, faithful man of God named Athanasius who stood firmly against Arius. And uh, there was quite a battle. It was a seesaw thing for a long time. Athanasius was um, exiled, and then he would come back from exile, and it's quite a battle. And finally, they uh, adopted the Nicene Creed that affirms that Jesus is eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. And yet in spite of that and the Athanasian Creed that strongly affirms the deity of Jesus, we still have Arianism with us today. It goes under a different label. It is called Jehovah's Witness. And the Jehovah's Witnesses today are essentially Arians. They exalt Jesus. I have read things in their watchtower where, if you take it out of context, you would say, my goodness, these people are believers. But if you press them, they deny that Jesus is eternal God. And if he is not eternal God, he is not the Savior. He could not save us from our sins. And then as if that weren't bad enough to have the Jehovah's Witnesses, we have the Mormons. And they have a different slant on Jesus than the Jehovah's Witnesses do. But the bottom line is they still deny the New Testament witness to the deity of Jesus Christ. That is at the heart of all of their errors. And then there are many other false cults in our day. There are cults that talk about the Christ within us all. You know, all of the uh, science of mind kind of cults use that kind of language. Or the Christ principle. And then we have liberal theologians who claim to be Christian and yet uh, they deny miracles because they have a scientific supposedly bias. And so they have to explain away all the miracles of the New Testament as being uh, the fertile imagination of the apostles and other writers. And they have to, uh, there's a thing called the Jesus Project where they go through and they vote, get this, they vote on which words of Jesus are his words and which ones are attributed to those who came after him. How do they know that? Well, they don't. It's just their own subjective speculations read into the text, and they are clearly uh, rejecting the New Testament witness. And then beyond that, we just have general confusion of the population at large, and frankly, There is a lot of confusion even in evangelical circles. As I mentioned last week, we have people who think nice thoughts about Jesus, but they don't read the the New Testament to see who he really is. Um, I'm currently reading John MacArthur's book, The Jesus You Can't Ignore. And he is pointing out how Jesus deliberately provoked confrontation with the Pharisees over and over and over again. They didn't provoke it. He did. 
to be in their face, to show them their errors. And that is not the Jesus a lot of evangelicals believe in. Um, But we need to look and see who is Jesus because our salvation hinges on it. Um, Confusion about Jesus. Jesus himself, of course, warned that in the end times there would be a lot of confusion in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verses 23 and 24. He said this uh, with regard to the end times. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. So it's really important that we not be confused about who Jesus is, but rather we must believe the truth about who Jesus is. Now, we don't know when Jesus responds in verse 28 whether he was overhearing all of this confusion about him. I think he probably was. Or whether it was simply supernatural knowledge of what was going on. But it says he cries out in the temple. And that word cried out in verse 28 means to shout with a loud shout. Of course, they didn't have microphones. But he stood up in the temple And he cries out with a loud shout. We'll see the same word down in verse 37 next time. Um, And uh, he says this, verse 28. You both know me and know where I am from, and I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Now, first of all, that statement would have been shocking to a Jew because the Jews prided themselves in knowing God. They realized we are not like those Gentile dogs, those polytheist idolaters. We know God. Jesus said, no, you don't. Wow, that hit him. But then you have to ask the question, but what does Jesus mean there when he says, you both know me, And know where I'm from. If they didn't know God, how could they know Jesus? In fact, in um, chapter 8, verse 19, Jesus tells them, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. So you have to scratch your head and ask the question, Well, what does Jesus mean when he says, You both know me and know where I am from? I agree with many commentators who say Jesus was using some irony here. In other words, he he was saying, in effect, you think you know me, and granted, there is a sense in which that is true. You think that you know that I came from Nazareth. And I did, after, of course, a birth in Bethlehem uh, and a sojourn in Egypt. But uh, you think you know me. Yeah, you know my relatives. You know I'm from Nazareth. But he's saying, you really don't know me at all. Uh, You uh, don't know me because you don't know God. And you don't know anything about my divine nature. You don't know anything about my unity with the Father. And so Jesus here is testifying to the truth of who he is. And it is vital that we understand and believe his testimony if we want to know him rightly. 
First of all, notice that Jesus testified that he had not come of himself, but that he had been sent here to earth by God the Father. Uh, Picking up in the middle of verse 28 and reading verse 29, I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. And so Jesus here again is affirming what we saw last time, and, and it occurs over and over and over and over in the Gospel of John. He was the one sent by the Father to this earth. And as I mentioned last time, that emphasizes at least two truths. Number one, it emphasizes Jesus' eternality. Number two, it emphasizes his authority. He is under the authority of the Father. But there's a third thing here, and that is it shows that he is under God's providential protection. So let's just briefly look at those three things. First of all, to be sent by God means Jesus is eternal. He did not begin his existence when he was born to the Virgin Mary. Jesus existed forever in eternity in glory with the Father before he came to this earth. We'll see in chapter 8, verse 58, when he's arguing with the Jews who uh, were skeptics, Jesus makes the startling statement, before Abraham was, I am. Not before Abraham was, I was. Before Abraham was, I am. And every Jew would have immediately connected that with Exodus 3.14. That's the situation where Moses is at the burning bush. And he says, God, show me your name. I'm going to go back to Egypt to my people. And they're going to ask, who sent me? And God says, tell them, I am sent you. And that word in Hebrew is related to Yahweh, the verb Hayah, to to be. Uh, So they picked up on that, and they picked up stones to stone him in John 8. And then in John 17, 5, Jesus prays, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Again, who could pray that other than God? With the glory which I had with you before the world was. So Jesus is saying, restore me now. To that glory which I shared with you before I laid that glory aside, took on the form of a servant, came to this earth, and he was about to go to the cross. Or again, John begins his gospel as we saw in John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Jehovah's Witnesses mistakenly Uh, translate that. The word was a God. There is no basis for that in the Greek. And so John is making the point, Jesus is the eternal God in human flesh. And so contrary to the Arians and modern day Arians, Jehovah's Witnesses, there never was a time when Jesus did not exist. He is eternal God. So when he took on human flesh, Jesus did not diminish his deity. He laid aside the glory so that it was veiled. uh, And his deity was not diminished. 
and his deity was not somehow mixed with humanity to produce some sort of a hybrid third substance. Some of you are familiar with um, a man named Witness Lee, who uh, was the leader of a sect called the local church. They call themselves the Church of Flagstaff, Church of Phoenix, Church of whatever city they're in. And I was very familiar with that group a number of years ago. Witness Lee would wrongly use the analogy of a um, tea bag and water. And he would say, before you put the tea bag into the water, you have two substances, a tea bag and water. And then you put the tea bag into the water and you have a new substance, tea water. And he would say, uh, Jesus you know, was God, and then he became man, and now he's God-man, a new substance. Well, that is to confuse uh, the full deity of Jesus and his perfect humanity. Through the virgin birth, Jesus' deity was not changed in any way. Rather, to Jesus' full deity, he added perfect humanity, and he is eternal God and now fully human in one person forever. Um, So, Jesus is eternal. To be sent by God means a second thing, and that is that Jesus operated under the full authority of the Father. In other words, he didn't come on his own initiative. He didn't make up his own stuff as a religious uh, um, innovator. But as he says up in verse 16 of chapter 7, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He was faithfully relaying to us the very teaching of God the Father. And then back in chapter 5, verse 19, we saw that Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also uh, does in like manner. And then in chapter 5, verse 30 also, he said, I can do nothing on my own initiative. He means separate from the Father. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And so Jesus was sent to earth under the authority of the Father to relay to us as a mediator the exact message of the Father. And so the point is, if you reject Jesus, you are rejecting none other than the Father who sent him. So to be sent means Jesus is eternal. It means that Jesus has the full authority of God when he speaks. But thirdly, in our text, we see that to be sent by God means that Jesus was under the providential protection of the Father. Note verse 30. So they were seeking to seize him, and no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Now we've already encountered in John chapter 2 the concept of Jesus' hour. And we will see it again in chapter 8, chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 17. And it points ahead to the cross. God ordained the cross before the foundation of the world. And it is the ultimate reason that Jesus came to this earth. 
And John uses it here to make the point, no one could touch Jesus until that divinely appointed hour came and then the Father permitted it and Jesus went to the cross. Now we can apply that to ourselves for this reason. In John chapter 20 and verse 21, Jesus told the disciples, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And I think that applies beyond the apostles to all who have come to faith in Jesus. The Father sent Jesus. If he has saved you, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is one who is sent out by an authority, a government authority. And so we are ambassadors for the divine king. And Jesus promised in the Great Commission that as we go, he would be with us even till the end of the age. And so we have the promise of his protection. Now, maybe you say, well, what about those that get martyred? Well, I believe John the Baptist was protected by God until the hour. It so happened the hour for him came when he was in his early 30s. Same thing for Jesus. The apostle John, his hour came when he was near 90. Uh, We don't know when our hour is, but there's a very comforting verse for me in Psalm 139, 16, where David says that, All our days were written in God's book before there was one of them. And so we can be assured that we are protected by the Father until the hour that He is determined, and then nothing's going to keep us here. We'll go to be with Him. So Jesus was sent then by God. That's the first thing that He testifies to. Secondly, Jesus testifies here that He knew God. Um, Now, most of Jesus' hearers, as he says in verse 28, did not know God. But then Jesus counters it in verse 29 and says this, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. No one has the knowledge of God that Jesus has. He is unique. As I said, he dwelled with God the Father from all eternity in heaven He has a complete and thorough knowledge of the Father because, as he says in John 10.30, he is one with the Father. He even tells Philip in John 14, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. There is a complete correspondence there. Um, And so Jesus can reveal the Father to us in a way that no one else can. We saw that back in chapter 1, verse 18, where John said, Um, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Now in John 17 and verse 3, Jesus defines the very essence of eternal life as knowing God. He says there, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In Luke chapter 10 and verse 22, Jesus makes a very profound statement. This is one where when you read it, you can do a lot of thinking about it and still not get to the bottom of it. He said this, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is, 
except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. And so he is saying the only way that you and I can know who the Father is is if he, Jesus, wills to reveal the Father to us. And that leads me to ask the question, are you asking the Lord Jesus, Lord, reveal the Father to me. I want to know you. I want to know you more deeply. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might, Let not a rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. By way of contrast, in Ephesians 4.18, the Apostle Paul describes the Gentiles who do not know God. He says they are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. But just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 4.13, he sets out the goal for the Christian life when he says that the goal is that we all attain to the unity of the faith, and then notice this next phrase, and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Or more succinctly, he said it in Philippians 3.10. Paul said his goal was that I may know him. He said that, that's what I'm striving for. That's what I'm aiming at, that I may know him. Again, can I ask, is that your conscious aim in life? That you might know Jesus Christ and God the Father uh, as you feed on his word. And if your aim is to know him, then that means that daily you are in his word, feeding on the word, meditating on the word, praying the word back to God, saying, God, Give me insight. Give me wisdom. Lord, I want to know Jesus. And if you've never done so, in addition to reading the Word, I would really encourage you to read some good books about how you can know God. There's, of course, the classic by J.I. Packer. Usually it's out on the book table, Knowing God. That is not a book you read quickly. Uh, you read a chapter and you chew on it for a week and then you kind of come back and wade through another chapter and chew on it. But it is a gold mine if you've never read it. It's worth rereading. Another is A.W. Tozer. It's shorter. His knowledge of the holy. Um, and in line with that is A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. Not very long, but meaty. If you really want to get into the meat and a little more length, there's the Puritan Stephen Charnock, who has a two-volume work called The Existence and Attributes of God. And uh, I read that once on a study leave, and um, the, the main thing that I want to go back and reread sometime, he has a wonderful chapter 
on the goodness of God. He goes on for like 100 pages on the goodness of God. It's really rich. And, um, and then there's just systematic theologies. I think Wayne Grudem's is out on the shelf there. And he writes in a very um, easy-to-understand, cookies-on-the-bottom-shelf kind of manner. And I would encourage you to read that, or there are other systematic theologies as well. But the point is this. You're only going to be able to digest these books if you come to them with a prayer and say, God, I don't know you like I want to know you. Would you reveal yourself to me through your word and through your spirit as I'm in your word? Now, let me remind you too, the knowledge of God is not just so you can have a cozy, quote, personal relationship with Jesus isolated from everything else. The knowledge of God is so that you can fulfill the two great commands, to love him, to love others. And as you get to know God, he changes you so that you become more like Jesus, conform to him, and so that the fruit of the Spirit affects your relationships with others. Love, joy, peace, patience. Ooh, why is that one in there? I get so impatient. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Read through that list until you have it memorized and then evaluate your relationships based on it. Am I being loving and joyful and, and peaceful and patient and kind and so on in my relationships, beginning with your family members, with others, because the more you know God, your, your character should be conformed to those qualities. And then the better you can represent God to others. We're called, as I said, to be ambassadors for Christ to lost people. In 1 Peter 2.3, he says there, If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, and then just a few verses later, verse 9, he says, Uh, If you've tasted the kindness of the Lord, then you're going to be able to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And so as you conform more and more to Jesus and to the fruit of the Spirit, your whole life and your words will be able to tell others, I just serve a wonderful and great Savior. And you'll be able to tell them about him. So the point is this. There are many confused opinions about Jesus out there. Don't be part of that, but rather believe the truth about him, his own testimony. And here he's testifying. uh, He was sent here by God. He knew God in a unique way. And we can only know God through faith in Jesus Christ. But there's a warning here at the end of our text that I have to bring out. And that is, that your eternal destiny depends on believing in Jesus, and don't miss these last words, while you still have opportunity. You all have a window of opportunity to put your trust in Christ. In verse 31, we read this, but many of the crowd believed in him, and they were saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? Now, there are some commentators that connect this with the 
so-called belief that we saw back in chapter 2. Remember, there Jesus was at the feast, and it says, Many believed in him, seeing the signs that he did. And then John adds, But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them uh, because he knew what was in their heart. In other words, it was a superficial belief. And it could be that here, but I note that John doesn't say anything negative about them here. And uh, I grant their faith here is a little shallow. Hey, well, when, you know, somebody else comes along, I mean, this guy seems to be the guy with the most miracles. So let's believe in him. It's pretty shallow. But you know, as I've thought about it, the Lord takes most of us with pretty shallow understanding and pretty shallow faith, doesn't he? I'm embarrassed to share it, but when I was a teenager, one of the main factors that made me commit my life to Christ was there was a a young couple, he was the associate pastor in our church, and he and his wife had a really wonderful marriage and family. And I looked at them, and I thought, you know, if the Lord can give me that kind of marriage and family, I'll follow him. (laughs) That was so self-centered, so shallow, not based on the truth about Jesus or you know, conviction of sin or all those other things that did come later, thankfully. And I think the Lord sometimes just says, well, that's pretty pathetic, but I'll take him. And, uh, you know, he takes us in and then he begins the process of saying, I'm going to show you some deeper things here, pal. I'm going to show you your sin and I'm going to show you what a great savior you've got. And, you know, so we grow. But, um, Thank God for his grace and that kind of thing. But the sad thing here is there are some who miss the window of opportunity and they end up facing God's awful judgment because they reject his son. In verses 33 and 34, after the chief, the priests and the Pharisees try to seize Jesus or send officers to seize him, Jesus tells the crowd, I'm going to be with you for a little while longer and then I'm going to go away to the one who sent me. And he knew that his hour was coming, the cross, six months out. And then he says to them, but after I'm gone, you're going to seek for me and you will not find me. And then he adds the chilling words, and where I am, you cannot come. You cannot come. Well, he's going to be in heaven. And he's saying, you're you're missing the window, guys. Right now, you could join those who believe in me. Instead, you're trying to oppose me and kill me. And the Jewish leaders, in typical fashion, misunderstand his statement. And I take verses 35 and 36 to kind of have a mocking tone. They say, this man, and that's a demeaning way of referring to Jesus, what's he going to do? Leave Jerusalem and go off and preach among the Gentiles, you know, the Greeks that live in other cities. They're referring to the Hellenistic Jews that have dispersed. And uh, they're confused. But here's the scary thing. Jesus doesn't correct their misunderstanding. He leaves them in their confusion. They miss the window of opportunity. And they walk away from the day of salvation and are left just saying, we don't get it. And they never see the truth that they missed. So it's kind of funny when you hear somebody that's confused about a church choir making music by rubbing their legs together, but it's also pretty tragic 
when you see people who are confused about the ultimate question, who is Jesus Christ? His testimony here about who he is is vital. And here's the deal. You have been given some light about who Jesus is by the very fact you're here this morning and you've heard this message. And here's what the Word of God says to you. This is not my word. This is the Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 2 tells you this. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. That means today. Don't miss the window of opportunity you have to put your trust in Jesus as your Savior and Lord this very moment. Let's bow before him. Dear Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. Lord, you know all things. You know all hearts. You know how locked into our sins we are, and only you can break in with the light of the knowledge of the gospel of the glory of Christ that we might be saved. So I pray you would open blind eyes, that you would soften hardened hearts, that you would draw any who don't know Jesus to the cross this morning. I pray, Lord, if your children have been negligent of seeking to know you through your word, that you would stir us all up with your grace and your kindness that is so great that we would be diligent every day, Lord, to be seeking you and your word to know you more, to be more conformed to Jesus And we ask it for his sake. Amen. We're going to uh, conclude by taking an offering.